This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mom and Dad are Fighting is brought to you by BowlandBranch.com, the company that makes luxury betting affordable. Order right now, and they'll give you 20% off, plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at BullandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. And use the promo code Mom and Dad. And by the New York Times bestseller, The Opposite of Spoiled by Ron Lieber, a taboo shattering manifesto that explains how openly talking to children about money can help parents raise kids who are grounded, non-materialistic, and financially wise. The Opposite of Spoiled, now in paperback. And by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com, and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com slash mom and dad. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for March 3rd, 2016, the Donna Prump edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate and the dad of Harper, who's eight, and Lyra, who's 10. Allison's gone! It's Super Tuesday today as I record this, and as Allison is Slate's news director, she is dealing with news. So I am on my own today, single dadding it out on Mom and Dad Are Fighting, or Dad is Fighting With Himself. I am pretty excited. Those of you who are Dan haters might want to tune out because this whole episode is just going to be me belittling stay-at-home moms and plugging the card game I invented. I know. I'm sure this episode will be fine, even without the moderating influence of Allison Benedict. I'm sure I can handle doing sharp, newsy interviews, even without our news director. I'm sure I won't say something so awful that every listener emails me to complain. This episode is going to be totally fun, as fun as a game of Ace of Hates. America's favorite family card game, available for purchase at aceofhates.com. In today's episode, I'll talk about social media and teens with Nancy Jo Sales, author of the new book, American Girls. Then Slate's Aisha Harris will join me to talk about the ABC sitcom Blackish, and it's a very special episode last week about cops and black kids. Plus, triumphs and fails, a listener call from the PTA president who says fuck, and for our Slate Plus segment, I'll be joined by Mike Pesca for a triumph or fail of his own. So, as I mentioned, it is Super Tuesday, and I voted this morning. I voted for Hillary, which, as a father of daughters, I am very, very excited to do, of course, despite the fact that Lyra has declared herself to not like Hillary very much. Uh, so we had a conversation about that. It turns out that she doesn't like Hillary because her mom, Alia, has been complaining a lot recently about the Hillary emails. Alia is a First Amendment attorney, and so the Hillary emails are something that really bother her. Um, 
And Lyra has decided that that thing that she doesn't even really understand at all is disqualifying, completely disqualifying from the presidency. She, she told us yesterday, I want there to be a woman president, but does it have to be Hillary? And we're like, yes, yes, Lyra, currently it does. It does have to be Hillary. But luckily, she is not into Trump. She is not a Trump fan. In fact, everyone she meets these days, she narrates this uh, political cartoon that she saw somewhere on the Internet. Who knows where uh, it says she, here's what she'll say. She'll like meet a stranger and she'll say, oh, I just saw this cartoon. It says the evolution of the Republican Party. And it starts with over on the left. There's Abraham Lincoln standing tall and proud. And then there's Richard Nixon sort of hunched over. And then there's Donald Trump walking. And here's here's where she starts like just cracking up walking like a monkey so my fail this week uh, is trump related uh recently i was in iceland uh reporting a story um and i met a very very nice family there in the town of isafjordur iceland they invited me to their house for dinner it was really nice and while the parents were cooking two of the kids in the family who were 10 and 12 just a little older than my kids kept running up to me and saying do you like donna trump and i would say Donald Trump? And then they would say, no, no, do you like Donald Trump? And I would say, Donna Trump? And then they would laugh and laugh and laugh. And so finally their mom says, I'm really sorry. They're not trying to talk politics with you. It's just that Donald Trump sounds like Donna Trump, which is Icelandic for dirty fart. So my fail is that I told my kids this story, and now they cannot stop referring to Donald Trump as dirty fart. In a way, it is a triumph. In a way, however, it is disrespectful to our eventual supreme leader. And if you're listening in the future, Emperor Trump, it in no way reflects the actual opinions of the smith Coyce family. Man, when the U.S. invades Iceland, you will know who to blame. Let's move on. Mom and Dad are Fighting is brought to you by Boland Branch. I got in an email conversation with a bunch of old college friends today about sleeping. They are mostly parents. They were all talking about how hard it is to get to sleep, how they wake up in the middle of the night and they can't go back to sleep, how their spouses snore, or they've learned that they just can't drink tea anymore because it won't let them sleep. And I was the one, the very useful one, who piped up in the middle of this email thread to be like, I am great at sleeping. And it's true. I'm really good at it. I'm the best napper alive unquestionably. I'm the Stephen Curry of sleeping. I'm totally undefendable. I sleep from 35 feet, 38 feet at the buzzer. It doesn't matter. But anyway, sleep is important to me. If sleep is important to you, you should get your sheets from a company that takes sleep as seriously as you do. Bullandbranch.com is the place to get fair trade certified sheets for a great price without all the department store baloney. Go to bullandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. And you can try their sheets out risk-free for 30 days. If you don't like them, return them. And right now, mom and dad are fighting listeners can get 20% off your first order plus free shipping. Go to bullandbranch.com and use promo code mom and dad. Bullandbranch.com, promo code mom and dad. Back to the show. And finally, you will get to hear a voice that isn't mine. All right, let's move on to our first segment. Perhaps you are, as I am, totally baffled about the way that your kids, or any kids, in fact, use social media. Are they bonding with their friends? On social media? Are they bullying or are they getting bullied? Are they exclusively sexting with serial killers? Nancy Jo Sales is a writer for Vanity Fair who spent years talking to teenagers about the way social media fits into their lives for her new book, American Girls. And she's here to talk to us today. Hi, Nancy Jo. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So, one thing that I noted right away in this book is that you pretty early on note that the 
you say that this, you were struck by the similarity of girls' experiences on social media, regardless of their race or background, that you, you kept talking to teenagers and you found that over and over and over again, they kept stressing the same kind of interactions and the same kind of culture that was being created to you. What was that culture? What was the thing that you kept hearing from all these teenagers about the way social media affected their lives? I think that's an accurate description. And I think that it has everything to do with the homogeneity of the apps themselves. You know, kids are on all kinds of different sites and apps, but the most popular ones are just a handful, right? And these apps require certain, you know, interactions and certain behaviors and certain kinds of uses, right? Because they're just designed in a certain way. And what seem to be happening for a lot of girls. The book is mainly about girls, although I do interview some boys. I interviewed over 200 girls and a a score or two of boys. And so there seems to be uh, a lot of sexualization of girls on, on these social media apps, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it's imagery, objectified imagery, and the trends in our culture, wider and really pernicious trends, you know, feeding into it. So, so it's, I mean, what you write is that because the currency of social media for girls so often is the image, this, uh, the selfie specifically, that that that's sort of that's the trading card that they have. That's the thing they that's the interaction they have available to them and that that feeds a certain kind of culture of self-objectification. It's it's really I mean it's really the way the apps are set up. They mostly the apps that most girls are on employ a liking feature and involve images. And the more likes you get, the more currency you have. And I kind of trace this back to an early site called Hot or Not where uh, people are invited to judge whether someone is hot or not. And this is sort of pervaded social media culture ever since oh i remember hot or not i i think i i think i someone i think i put my own picture up on there to see what would happen and i was not i was not hot (laughs) well i can't Uh, see you right now so i can't really comment thank you that would (laughs) that that would but it shouldn't matter it It shouldn't matter it shouldn't matter but yet it does and that's i mean that's sort of the one of the points of course right is that teenagehood is already incredibly rife for everyone, but especially for girls, with this sort of constant low-level sense of anxiety about the way that you fit in the world and the way that you look compared to other people. And so creating this sort of additional social space in which teenagers are constantly engaged with each other that revolves around this notion of being constantly looked at and being constantly viewed seems to exacerbate that problem. Exactly. And I mean... Sexism is nothing new, but it does seem to be exacerbated by this online environment. And, you know, we would like our girls in our culture, our daughters, our nieces to have a sense of self-worth based on whether or not they're a good person or they got an A on a math test or they, you know, have lots of friends or, you know, all kinds of things that we want them to focus on, whether you know, aside from whether or not they're hot, according to a handful of people on on the internet, who who may or may not have good intentions in in evaluating them. One thing that I struggled with a little bit while reading the book and in reading coverage about this is that I feel as though we really live in a world way more than when I was a kid, for example, in which young women are 
uh, encouraged to be confident and are encouraged to be empowered and who really have seized feminism to a large degree as uh, as the sort of the dominant way of thinking about their lives, whether they state it as feminism or not. They are living very feminist teenage lives in many ways. But it's hard for me to to balance that against what I, you know, against the reporting in your book and the sense I do get of them also feeling constantly concerned about But are you equating feminism with sexualization? Because according to multiple, multiple studies, uh, including a landmark report from 2007, which I would encourage all parents to read, the American Psychological Association's report on the sexualization of girls, sexualization does not breed empowerment. It breeds exactly the opposite. It has enormous uh, consequences for girls. It can have, including anxiety, depression, cutting, eating disorders. So there's sometimes a misconception about what sexualization really is and what it does if you're a child or a teenager. I mean, I think when you're talking about uh, grown-ups, adults, and the choices that they make, that's very different when, than when you're talking about a 13-year-old. That's true. Although I don't know that I, I don't know that I'm equating a f- sort of feminist consciousness with sexualization in this case. I do feel like most girls get the lesson very strongly from their parents and from the media that they can, at this point, be anything they want to be. That their worth is not based on their the way that they look. That getting that A on that math test is great, that being a good person is great. And I know that, you know, this is an incredibly complicated issue, but it it strikes me, it's difficult for me to imagine how young women balance those two totally competing drives, which I know are both very strong. And so in your reporting, how did you find the kids? I think maybe you're overestimating the extent to which, at least for the girls I talk to, I think you're overestimating the extent to which they get this message. The overwhelming Mm -hmm. message that they do get, and the APA report bears this out, is that um, they get it from the media, they get it from advertising, from clothing, even from toys. I mean, we've all seen the BuzzFeed article about what Strawberry Shortcake looked like in the 80s and what she looks like now. She looks very different. She looks, I think it's safe to say, sexualized. So if you're saying that girls are getting this idea that what's most important about them is who they are, I don't think that's the message that American culture is giving them really overwhelmingly at all. And I think this has got to change. So what's the solution? Is the solution to prepare them? Is it to remove them from social media entirely? Is it to make sure we're having these conversations before they access these things? And how can we make sure we are? I think it's up to every parent to determine what level of social media engagement they want their kid to have. You know, it's like my book is not a parenting book. It's a it's a it's a book of, about girls. It's largely in their voices. And I think through reading it you'll hear about experiences of a lot a lot of girls that are very typical of of um what's going on today. I mean, and as you mentioned before, there's a certain repetitiveness to it because this is the culture now. This is what is happening. You know, people want to tell you that social media is this creative space where, you know, everything, you know, it's just sort of like open and free. And, you know, it's like you're running through the field with rainbows. It's it's very constrictive, actually. I think that it it really creates uh, expectations about how you perform online, you know, and on social media. So I'm not so sure that it is this creative space. I think it's um, I think it's pressure. So uh, last question for you. You are a parent. Yes, I am. Do you have a teenager? I have a teenage daughter who's 15. 
Okay, so did, and did this reporting, I know it's not a parenting book, but did reporting this out change your parenting in any way? How did it affect the way that you thought about these things in your life? Well, when I came to the subject, my daughter was 12, and she didn't have a phone. She was right on the verge of when these things start to happen. Although for, me, for our family, I mean, like, there are families where kids get phones, iPhones, when they're six or seven years old. And, in fact, you'll read in the book that there are, like, 16-year-olds who cannot believe what is happening with the 13-year-olds. They'll say, like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is just so much worse than when we were 13. You know, they sound yeah, like... The next generation. Right, what exactly. A well, it happens really fast. I mean, the culture of social media is very fast, and it accelerates very, very quickly. So, I mean, think about, like, what life was like eight years ago versus now, you know, when smartphones came out eight or nine years ago. It's just, it's like... A, it's a complete revolution of of day to day life of behavior. Everything is different, and adults are doing a lot of these things too. So, I didn't really even three years ago it wasn't as much. There wasn't as much social media or social media use. And so, in the last three years, as I've talked to all of these girls and learned all of these things, I've been able to also talk to my daughter about it. And I'm again, I'm not a parenting expert, and I I am a parent. And I, I know that having this sort of ongoing conversation with her has been really helpful in being her parent. All right. The book is called American Girls. It is super interesting. We'll have a link to it on our show page and on our Facebook page. Thank you so much, Nancy Jo Sales. Thank you. Hey, if you like our show, like our Facebook page. Allison has been trying to guilt you into it every week. But I know that that's not the way to your heart. I know that you will like us on Facebook because you know our Facebook page is the best place to see our recommendations, to ask us questions, to talk to other listeners, and to yell at Allison for skipping this week so you had to listen to me talk for fucking ever. Facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Log on, like us, and please yell at Allison a lot. Mom and Dad are Fighting is brought to you by The Opposite of Spoiled, the New York Times bestseller from Ron Lieber. Ron is the Your Money columnist for The New York Times. He is a frequent guest on our show, and his great book, The Opposite of Spoiled, is now out in paperback. It's a great blueprint for how to handle the basics of kids and money, including, like, the tooth fairy, chores, uh, donating to charity, cell phones, cars, all the way up to college tuition, the stuff that you potentially, like me, are not even having nightmares about yet. Ron deals with it in his book. And for a limited time, when you purchase the paperback of The Opposite of Spoiled, you can get a free list of the best picture books to teach young children about money. Visit ronlieber.com for more details and to sign up for his mailing list. The Opposite of Spoiled. We'll have a link on our show page and our Facebook page, slate.com slash fighting. Okay, let's move on to our listener call. It's from Devin. And it's a doozy. Hi. My name is Bevan, and I'm a college professor. I'm a mom of three kids, 16, 12, and 8. Uh, my kids have all attended a neighborhood school, which is kindergarten through sixth elementary school. We live in an, a large urban district, and we moved here when my first kid was in the first grade. The school is a Title I school, which means that over 50% of the students are free or reduced lunch. I've always been a good citizen joining PTA and donating funds and volunteering my time here and there, but a little over a year ago, I agreed to take the PTA president position mid-year when someone stepped down. And as my shitty luck would have it, no one stepped up last spring to take over, so I agreed to be president for another term. PTA has lots of rules and regulations, and as my crappy luck continues, it turns out that, yes, since I started my term on a January 13th last year and not December 31st, I could, in fact, be PTA fucking president for yet another term. 
what do I do? I don't want to be the CTA president again, but I care a lot about our school. The parent organizations basically mean that we get all those extras, you know, like art, science, music, gardening, PE. A colleague, an English professor, a friend of mine, said to me recently, you know, Bevan, there's a fine line between a good citizen and a fool. Okay, help me out. I don't know what to do. Sincerely, Bevan, the PTA president, who says fuck. You sound miserable. But I'm really very impressed, I should say, by you and your dedication to uh, your kid's education. It sounds like you really believe in this, that it is important to you, that even though you are pissed and annoyed, you care about this thing, which is great and which matters. Here's why you're in this situation, Devin. It is not because you are a fool, like that so-called friend of yours said. It is because you are the person who gets shit done. You have always been that person, Devin. You were that person in college when you were the one who made sure there was beer at the party. You were that person like early in your professorial career when you were the one who made sure that what I like that students who needed help in the department got help. Now you are that person who gets shit done for your kid's school. But luckily, that same talent means that you are perfectly situated to solve this problem. The other parents on the PTA know that you are the person who gets shit done. Believe me, they know. They know that about you. So when you send each and every one of them an email saying, on June 1st, I'm Audi 5000 of this job and this PTA has no president so your kids have no PE classes, they'll know you are fucking serious. So then you devote your getting shit done skills to this specific test, to getting a new PTA president. You email every day reminding everyone that the PTA needs a new president. You can tell them jokes. You can tell them about how, what the job is like. You can get on the phone and call other parents who betray that they might also have the getting shit done gene. But because you get shit done, you'll get this done. You will get one of them to overry up and take the job. You will be so clear and firm and Devony, you will be the essence of Devon, that they will know that they have to, that when you say you're done, you're done, and you will never, ever, ever continue in that job. Which, of course, you would do. You would continue in the job, right? You, If you had to, you would. If someone else took the job, and then they like got arrested for like dealing ecstasy out of their car or something, and the PTA called you, and they were desperate, you would do it, because you, Devon, care about your school, and you are a person who gets shit done. If you have a question you want to ask us on the air, give us a call. It's 424-255-7833. That number again, 424-255-RUDE, which is what Devin will have to be to the other parents to convince them that she's out and they must step up. All right. In a moment, we'll be talking about Blackish's very special episode. But first, Mom and Dad are Fighting is brought to you by Club W, leading the grape to glass wine revolution. When you are doing an entire podcast by yourself, you cannot wait to get home and pour yourself a good glass of wine. But I'm terrible at picking wine. I pick based like solely on whether the label looks cool, whether it looks like a jazzy 1980s Joe Jackson album cover. So sometimes I drink like really good wine, and sometimes I drink terrible wine. Uh, and even I can sometimes tell the difference. But with Club W, the guessing game is over. Club W is the world's only personalized wine club sending wines you will love directly to your door. Club W's six-question palette quiz figures you out so the site can recommend wines perfectly tailored to your tastes. You'll love the wines they send you, or they'll give you your money back. Our listeners get 50% off their first order if you go to clubw.com slash momanddad. So great wine, no risk, delivered right to your door. You can drink it when you're finished recording a podcast without your podcast partner. 50% off at clubw.com slash momanddad. 
All right, let's move on to our second segment. Last week, the ABC sitcom Blackish broadcast a pretty remarkable episode called Hope. In it, the characters in the sitcom, the upper-class Johnson family who live in Southern California, argue about another case of police brutality against a black man. The show is really interesting, both for its sort of impressive, very special episodeness, but also for the different messages it delivered to viewers about the way that parents ought to treat charged, difficult situations when they talk about them with their kids. Slate's Aisha Harris wrote about the episode and is here to talk to us about it. Hi, Aisha. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. You wrote in your piece that the way that each individual episode of Blackish is structured means that every episode is kind of a very special episode. What did you mean by that? Um, basically, the format of, uh, of Blackish generally seems to go like this. It opens with uh, Dre, who is played by Anthony Anderson and is the patriarch of the family, um, sort of giving a, a tongue-in-cheek thesis on what the episode is going to be about. And as he's laying out this um, voiceover narration, there are usually like stock footage and and clip like newsreel clips that sort of flash by in, in, in montages. And so each one sort of opens with this thesis. And throughout the episode, this thesis will be wrestled with in many different ways. And the topics have ranged everything from, you know, my daughter is dating a white guy. What? How do I deal with this? There's another episode from that. Actually, I think it opened this uh, the second season, where the youngest son, um, he uses the N-word in, in front of a um, his mostly white school um, when he's performing Kanye West's Gold Digger. And so then it becomes this whole like conundrum of what do I do? How, like, are we allowed to say the word? Can we say it in mixed company? That kind of thing. So every episode is tackling some sort of like hot button issue. And in this one, this episode, um, Hope, kind of takes a very special episode to like a whole new level. And in dealing with police brutality, I mean, I think we all knew it was coming because Blackish from the beginning um, has sold itself as like, we're going to basically cover every single um, issue that black Americans face today. And, um, you know, I I think it was probably, it was definitely the most the best episode of Blackish and also the most emotional episode the of Blackish. The most very special yes. episode of Blackish. So the setup for this one is that they're all in the living room and they're and watching CNN and there's been another incident of police brutality against a black person. In this case, it's someone who got like tased like 30 times. 37 uh, times. 37 they, times. They, they say it many times. Yeah. I, I apologize for underplaying the tasedness of this fictional character. Um, but uh, because for like nothing, for like selling bootleg DVDs on the street. Yeah. And they, as they watch, the grand jury declines to file to indict this the cops who are responsible for tasing this guy and, and then sort of protests and riots start breaking out around the country, according to CNN. Don Lemon on CNN is doing the reporting on this, uh, on the show. And so the whole family is in the living room, uh, and they really start hashing this out. And one of the things I found really interesting was the way that the sort of multi-generational sitcom cast, which is very traditional in a family sitcom, allowed the show to have characters espousing really different viewpoints and and really arguing about issues in a way that I feel like you don't see that often on a traditional sitcom. So how, you know, in what ways did these different issues reflect different ways of looking at this question? And, and what were the arguments that some of these characters were presenting? Yeah, I mean, this one in particular, it wasn't even just the multi-generational, because usually on sitcoms and even in real life, obviously, you have like the grandparents, uh, Pops and Ruby, um, so they're Dre's parents. And then you also have the parents who are Bo, Rainbow, um, 
played by Tracy Ellis Ross, and then Dre. And then with even within the kids, you have even more sort of generational divides. Um, you have the older kids, Zoe and Junior, um, who each have their own opinions. And then you have the youngest kids, who are twins. And they also, they're basically, they are twins who are, they are, I think, around seven or eight years old. So... Everyone has their own opinion. Bo is playing the sort of the sort of neutral stance where she keeps saying, you know, oh, th- this will all work out. Uh, just to clarify, the, the episode starts um, where they're waiting for a grand jury indictment. So everything unfolds over this half hour. And so from the beginning, she's like, oh, the, the law will, will work, it, work it all out. It's a terrible thing that happened, but it'll be fine. And she's uh, specifically arguing against having a conversation with the smallest kids about it because she feels like you don't need to bring up the ugliness of the situation when there's still a chance that it might work out. Exactly. And the kids are like, they can tell that something's up. Um, they're like, why is everyone so mad when they see the rioting? And, and Bo's like, why don't you guys go in the other room and, you know, pick out what we're going to have for dinner? And then you also have Dre, who is basically like the sort of goes off and, and, and is really pissed off about everything that's happening. Um, and then you have the, the father. The father and Ruby, I think, are kind of the, they represent the older generation, and they are very much like, you know, this is terrible. They're, I mean, they're, they're more firebrands. Cynical. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they're not the older generation in the sense of like being quieter or more resigned. They are sort of firebrands in this right. argument. Yeah. yeah, and they're very, they're very cynical. Um, Ruby at one point says something like, they, they're "Just like black, the, the cops don't like black people." It's simple as that. So you have them, and then. Uh, there's a back and forth. There's also a mention of Tanahasi Coates's book. Right, Junior has learned everything he knows about <laughs> this issue from reading Tanahasi Coates. Exactly, and so there's a funny sort of running gag where Dre is like, uh, "Well, everything that he said, I've said before. He's not saying anything new." And then uh, Pops jumps in and he's like, "Well, you know, do you remember when you first learned about the autobiography of Malcolm X, and that was nothing new?" And so it was just like this very interesting discussion and critique in a way of like our quote quote, foremost speakers of race, uh, depending on the given generation. So right. You have- it's fun to see the way that those the, the, those conversations have repeated themselves from generation to generation, which is something the show plays with, with very brief sort of comic flashbacks, with cutaways and bits that, that drive these jokes home while also exploring the way these conversations have repeated over the years. Right. And that's, that's partly what makes this episode so great is that even amongst all the various sort of, I've seen people compare it to like a Norman Lear um, episode, a very special episode. I mean, Norman Lear, I think, was ahead of his time at, when he was producing all those shows like Good Times and, and everything. At the same time, though, I think that sells it a little bit short because it's done in such a smarter and I guess more modern way. Um, the dialogue is just very zippy. It's very back and forth. It, they don't linger too long on one point, which I think is something that you will see in very special episodes from the 80s and 90s where someone will like stand up and grandstand for a little while. I feel like it just goes a lot more zippier and 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 keeps that humor. Like It doesn't weigh it down. Like There's the Chipotle um, running gag uh, right. throughout and, and all these other moments. So It's it, interesting though that there's I agree with you that throughout the episode, the episode is very focused on keeping the energy up, making sure that there's sort of a joke for every two serious things that people say. People will throw out statistics on one hand and then make a pretty great joke on the next hand. But there's one moment, sort of the centerpiece moment of the show, I thought, in which Dre gives a kind of a long speech to Bo, which took it in an unexpected direction, I thought. And maybe, Anne, you can play a quick clip from that speech now. Wake up! 
Let's say they listen to the cops and get in the car. Look what happened to Freddie Gray. Yeah, and what if they make it all the way to the station? Mm -hmm. You remember Sandra Bland? And let's say they do make it to trial. Mm -hmm. You see where that gets us? Don't you get it, Bo? The system is rigged against us. Maybe it is, Dre. But I don't want to feel like my kids are living in a world that is so flawed that they can't have any hope. Oh, so you want to talk about hope, Bo? Obama ran on hope. Remember when he got elected? And, and, and we felt like maybe, just maybe, we got out of that bad place and made it to a good place. That, that the whole country was really ready to turn the corner. You remember that amazing feeling we had during the inauguration? I was sitting right next to you. And we were so proud. And we saw him get out of that limo and walk alongside of it and wave to that crowd. Tell me you weren't terrified when you saw that. Tell me you weren't worried that someone was going to snatch that hope away from us like they always do. That is the real world, Bo. And our children need to know that that's the world that they live in. That scene, it crystallized sort of what I think the the aim of the episode was. Because I think one of the things that Blackish does really well is it provides a, an argument and then a counter argument and like a counter counter argument. So there's never like any one specific thing. You're you're not you're, you're never getting just one thing out of an episode. And I think what that this this moment does is is a it brings in this very real emotional component that we haven't seen in Blackish before and which you often get in very special episodes but I feel like it's just done so just done so well. I, th- I thought one of the things that made it so effective was that it was a little bit out of left field, that it wasn't specifically about the argument they've been having this whole time. Exactly. But it sort of dug into the root of what that argument was in a very heartfelt way. Yeah. It expresses, I think, what the show overall has been trying to do is to prove that we don't live in a post-racial society. Right. And, and, and bringing in the... Obama, who like is who is the representative of this so-called uh, post-racial society, and is the reason why this phrase even exists in in many ways, and bringing in the fact that like there were like what he says in that moment, I've heard so many older people say, older black people say about when Obama was inaugurated, and the fact that there was this worry. That, you know, at any moment, <laughs> what if the Secret Service aren't really doing their job? What if there's a right. conspiracy? Like, there's just that fear. And right. I mean, even now, like, I <laughs> I must confess that, like, I still I'm, I still wonder sometimes. I'm like, dude, I mean, he's still got like nine months left. Right. Like, anything can happen. Right. And, and people are going crazy now. So and I, and I, I in a way, I fear even more than I than I probably did, you know. It's eight years ago, although I'm also older, so I feel like when you get older, you you worry about those things more. Right. Well, so part of the argument of the show in this episode is how how can we be post-racial if black people can't see the president without worrying in the back of their minds that the color of his skin is going to get him killed in the same way that it could get them killed or could get their kids killed? Like that is that's a really potent argument. And that moment is really quite amazing, I thought. And the issue of whether we live in a post-racial society also really affects, I think, how different families will watch this episode, right? It seems to me that black viewers and black families will 
get this episode, will get the references and understand these kinds of conversations in a way that white families might not, but that white families are the ones who are most likely to learn something from it. Like black families are not going to watch this and say, oh boy, we better have this conversation (laughs) because they are already having this, they are already thinking about these issues. But white parents like me, it reminds us that we have a really easy way out on this issue if we want. Like we can just not have these conversations with our kids until they're like old enough to vote because we don't have to. But black families don't have that privilege. They don't have that ability. And so what, thinking about the ways that different kinds of families watch this episode, for me, has been a really interesting way to think about putting a very special episode into the world. Right. I mean, I think that's the thing that I hope that non-black families can get out of that is the idea that like, Black kids don't really have much time to like be innocent and ignore things in the world. That's, I mean, that's that's Bo's whole issue in in this episode is trying to shield the youngest twins from <clears throat> encountering that. But they they can't not know about it because, especially for the boy half of the twins, he is not seen by a lot of people as being a boy. He can be seen as a threat, and right. so. That that is that moment of Dre saying like we can't like their lives depend on them knowing what is going on and and if they don't understand and if we don't teach them then they could easily wind up like the guy who was tasered. Right. So all right. So last question. I was so delighted by the ending of this episode that it was not <laughs> them hugging and learning, but them going out to protest. Yeah. Like to go like go out to take some action, and that struck me as. In the end, maybe it's sort of the most revolutionary thing in this episode that that a very special episode ends up endorsing action in the streets, ends up endorsing the struggle. How did you read that? I'm not sure I had the exact same reaction initially. The ending felt like a little too tidy for me, even for for Blackish. Like I kind of expect it's it's still a sitcom at the end, and I guess it, maybe it was more so the way it was executed. Like that was a one moment that felt sort of like. Norman Learish in a in a bad way. <laughs> like, all right, we're gonna I guess I'm gonna go or We gotta end this somehow. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh I guess let's go protest in the streets. Um I, I, I it felt a little false to me, but it didn't matter because everything that preceded it I thought was so great and I feel like it just it earned that moment to be sort of cheesy in a way. Um but I can also mm-hmm. see your perspective. Like I do think it is great that at least some of the family because Thankfully, like smartly, I think they left. They let the little kids stay at home. Um, <laughs> so let's not put them in that that sort of danger. But at least they know that their their older siblings and their family is is going out and doing doing something. So yeah, yeah. I, I kind of. I mean, I do kind of love the notion that a show can endorse in some way the power of protest. Like that's not a component in most sitcoms at all. And as tidy as it was, as tidily as it was presented, and certainly like the moment where they all like decide in five seconds that they're all going to walk out the door was was very sitcommy. I still love that that was the result, and not just like everyone shaking hands and having a Chipotle burrito. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm rewatching a different world for like the I don't know twentieth time <laughs> uh, on Netflix, and that show I think out of out of all the shows of the eighties and nineties. Uh, was very good about confronting kind of the same issues that yeah. that Blackish has in 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 almost every episode, and I, I think I remember them doing an episode uh, centered around the Rodney King beatings, and yeah. and that also I remember that episode. Yeah, it was a great episode, and and you know I think there's there's also that sort of talk about protesting, and so I think it, this episode sort of echoes that 
in the sort of let's get at this from all different sides as many yeah. we can and then ending with uh, going out and protesting. All right. Thank you, Aisha. The Blackish episode is called Hope. We'll have a link on our show page and at Facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting and a link to Aisha's really great piece. Thanks again. Thank you. All right. Moving on. Hey, if you like mom and dad are fighting, tell a friend. The more people listen to our show, the more likely we are we are to get to do a live show in your city. This week, I want you to tell your PTA president. Those people do a lot of work. They would probably love a podcast to listen to in their rare moments to relax. So just walk right up to your PTA president and say, Devin, I have got a podcast for you. Let's move on to recommendations. First off, uh, Panoply has a very cool new podcast, which I really wish had existed when Alia was pregnant. It is called Pregnancy Confidential, and I really love how Panoply released it. They released all 32 episodes of it, each one about 20 minutes long. They released them all at once, like Netflix style, uh, and each episode tracks each week of pregnancy. So you can listen through all 32 episodes week to week from the day you pee on the stick to the day that you have that damn baby. It is a really good idea. Uh, check it out at iTunes.com slash Panoply. My recommendation for this episode is I'm recommending the new Disney movie Zootopia, which hits theaters this Friday on the 4th. Uh, it's very funny. It's very charming. and has a great heroine, Officer Hops, who is a fresh-faced police officer new to the force who also happens to be a bunny rabbit. Also, perhaps insanely, the entire movie is about racial profiling. Like, that is the theme of the movie. So the theme of Frozen is that sisterly love can conquer all, and the theme of Zootopia is that racial profiling by police is bad. I sort of can't believe that this happened, so uh, support this potentially foolish choice with your box office dollars. Also, you'll have a good time. It's a fun movie. That's our show. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Send us an email at mom and dad at slate.com and suggest guests or topics and give us a call at 424-255-7833 if you want us to answer your question on the air. Today's blackish topic was suggested in an email by listener Teresa Wong. Thank you, Teresa, for that. Mom and Dad are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. Check out Panoply's new show, Pregnancy Confidential, and all the Panoply shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, and to our intern, Shiva Bayat. Thanks to Steve Lichtai, the managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers, the emperor of Panoply. Thanks to Donald Trump. No thanks to Allison Benedict. Thank you to our guests, Nancy Jo Sales, Aisha Harris, and Mike Pesca. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.